Hello and welcome to the Funds Fanatic Show. I'm very pleased to be joined on the podcast today by Red Wheel Fund Manager Nick Clay. Nick does something that's become slightly unfashionable in the world of asset management. He runs a global equity income fund. Two years ago, he also left behind a massive operation and billions of assets at his old employer, Newton, jumping ship with his team to start from scratch at Red Wheel. So as a minimum, I'm hoping we can find out today why the move and why equity income. Nick, thanks so much for uh, joining me today in person My pleasure. on the podcast. Thanks for yeah. having me along. Fantastic. And uh, well, so March 2020 uh, turned out to be quite a time to move jobs. Um, talk me through your and your, your colleague's decision to leave Newton, which is part of BMY Mellon, and moved to Red Wheel, which we'll get out the way early. You was RWC until quite recently. It was, yeah, that's to, right, to and a, we've changed ourselves to Red Wheel. Exactly right. Um, well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, timing is everything, mm. and uh, you know, we didn't know the pandemic was coming, but uh, it was an interesting time, obviously, to to leave your employer. But the reason why we chose uh, to leave Newton to move to Red Wheel was that. The structure at Newton had become um, unsupportive of what we were doing. Okay. Um, and th- it was actually becoming counterproductive to what we were doing. Yeah. And Can I ask how, how so? Well, because we have a very strong discipline in what we try to do on the strategy. Um, and that discipline obviously revolves around income. Um, and it means that every stock we own has to have an income. And, mm. uh, and we're forced to buy stuff, basically, good companies when they're out of favour. Mm-hmm. And then equally, we're forced to sell the good companies when everybody loves them. Okay, because then um, the dividend yields have, have Because come down then the dividend the yields gone below that of the market, and mm-hmm. we're forced to sell. The problem with that is that uh, we had a bunch of uh, centralised research at Newton, which didn't have that same income discipline. And so we weren't getting any ideas off them to help us. But more importantly, it was that those analysts were starting to undermine what we were doing. So we would buy a stock and the analysts would come over and go, why are you buying that? Obviously, something's going wrong with this stock. Are you a fool for buying that? Mm. Yeah. And, and, and we spent more of our time fighting with our own internal analysts, which is counterproductive. We obviously have a limited amount of resource and time of a day. Yeah. You don't really want to be wasting it fighting with other people. And of course, the same happens when you're selling things. You know, and, and quite regularly, we were selling things. Other fund managers at Newton are buying the stuff at the same time as we're selling it. The analysts, again, are telling you why on earth you selling these things everything's wonderful with this company surely you should be holding on to it yeah um and trying to explain to them that uh, statistically this tends to encourage us to do the right thing at the right time uh, even though it feels uncomfortable at the time of purchase and at the time of sale when you mm. look back over time and it, that strategy has been in place for 15 years so you've got the data to be able to look back over time it encourages you to do the right thing at the right time yeah so we decided as a team we knew what was working we knew that day to day as a team everything was working um but the surrounding environment or the water within which we were swimming mm. was becoming unsupportive of us. And, and therefore, from a point of view of being able to sit honestly in front of our clients and say, you invest your money with us, you're likely to get us running your money for the next 10 to 15 years, was a very difficult thing to actually promise to anyone. Because when you're not in a supportive environment of what you do, the chance are you're going to have turnover in the team, are you going to be successful to doing it for the next 15 years, all of these things become a big challenge. Um, and so we knew we had to change what needed changing, but keep the same what was working. And what was working was the team, the process, the philosophy yeah. and everything. So we just lifted everything up 
and went and plugged ourselves in. That's, uh, that's, Red Will. that's very interesting. So it's like the whole place had been captured by a kind of growth investing mindset. Yes. I mean, it comes, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why we went to Red World as well, is yeah. that the ownership structure. So the ownership structure of Red World is its own by the people who work for Red World, 73% owned by the people. Um, and that's important because uh, it means that the business is, <clears throat> sounds like a strange thing to say, like a genuine business. It retains its profits every year, puts it on the balance sheet, builds up resilience, mm. which enables it to think long term about stuff. And what I mean by that is that when uh, strategies and all strategies do go through difficult times, there's no pressure on the business to have to change anything because it can quite happily suffer periods where things might not work for a bit. Yeah. At Newton, the ownership structure is not that. The ownership structure is that all the retained properties of Newton get swept up to be in my men and they own 100% of Newton. That's what happens. But it means you have a, a business which is more fragile because it's unable to build up a buffer and therefore be able to suffer through difficult times. Mm. What that means from a fund management point of view is that when your strategy goes through difficult times, the business is under pressure for you to start making it work again quite quickly because you've got to keep selling this stuff got to keep pulling really fast and of course then you get questions about well should you change it should be doing a high yield should you be putting derivative structures around it to do things should maybe you should give up your disciplines and buy all this gross stuff that's going to the moon for goodness sakes everybody else is Mm. um you know these pressures are put on you because of the nature of the business because it's fragile it can't help itself but think like that um, and, and so by going to a company which is owned by the people uh, is a company that has uh, resilience built into it because it builds up buffers on its balance sheet, enables you to set a culture where they're supportive. Um, and when things get difficult, they just put their arm around you and say, mm. don't worry about it. You know, we believe in what you do too. We understand it's statistically attractive. Just keep doing it and eventually it'll come right again. And that's a much better environment for fund managers to work in. Because we're all human beings, yeah? yeah. And when things don't work, frequently they don't work. When things don't work, it's quite emotionally, it's quite stressful. Mm. So you don't want additional stress put upon you by the culture within which you're working. You want something that's supportive of what you're doing rather than putting pressure on you. Yeah, and and do you and you do you feel that leads to better outcomes for your own investors as well? Definitely, um, because. Yeah, the hardest thing I think one of the hardest things to do in uh, in this business is to constantly put process before outcome. Mm. Um, and why I say that is that there are many things which determine the outcome of your investments. Quite a lot of it's luck. Yeah. Um, and therefore, if you get it the wrong way around, and you keep looking at the outcome to determine whether you did something right or wrong. Mm invariably you will end up misinterpreting what you did um uh, you know annie duke in her book thinking in bets talks about this a lot and it's a great book okay uh, and and she's one of the best female poker players in the whole world and 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 it's very right in poker too is that you win a hand and you think you played that hand brilliantly you're a genius you won the hand but actually you just got lucky that the cards flopped but because you then go i'm brilliant i'm going to keep playing my hands in that manner well, actually, the way you played that hand was rubbish. And statistically, you keep playing your hands like that, you're going to lose all your money because yeah. luck's not always going to be on your side. Then you end up, because of the outcome, implying the wrong process. Mm. So you need to, it's the same in investment management, you need a process which is statistically leaning the chances of you getting it right more often than not. 
and you can never get it right all the time. So you're just trying to lean it greater than 50%. And you then just need to repeat and repeat and repeat. And what you mustn't do is get <clears throat> distracted by the, the times. You know, if you can get it right 55% of the time, you're going to do incredibly well. Yeah. It's a low, you know, that's not, a, you <laughs> right, kind of think, surely it's going to be bigger than that. But actually, you look through all the best of our managers over time, they get it right 52% of the time, mm. which sounds ridiculously low. Um, they also, the other thing they do, which is very good, is that they, when they get it wrong, they don't lose too much money. Either. They understand the risks involved and they don't put all their chips down on the one that's most risky. <clears throat> but you just got to try and lean the stats and then you've got to repeat it. But then, of course, there will be lots and lots of instances where it doesn't seem to be working. Yeah. You know, and this, our sell discipline is a great example of that. Um, so we are forced to sell every company that yields less than the market. Okay. Uh, that's a hard rule. <clears throat> that's a hard rule. Um, and uh, and you can I mean that can happen for two reasons. Mm. Yeah, the one, is, the good reason, which is we got it right. The share price went up a lot. It doesn't yield enough anymore, and therefore we're forced to sell. And then obviously we just got it completely wrong, and the company cuts its dividend. And then <clears throat> what's interesting is when you look back through time, it didn't matter whether we sold it because we got it completely wrong or we sold it because it's done really well. Statistically, great, it's greater than fifty five, fifty percent of the time that it's the right thing to do is to sell that stock and recycle the money back into the portfolio. The portfolio does better for the next 12 months than the thing you sold. Mm. But obviously not everyone does that. <clears throat> so we owned Microsoft in 2013 okay, uh, when it was priced to go bust. And then we were forced to sell Microsoft in about the middle of 2018. And of course, Microsoft just continued to go to the moon ever since. Yeah, So people will go, well, that's obviously a ridiculous sell discipline. That's just nonsense. Look, it's made you sell Microsoft too early. Mm. But the reality is, but that's not investing. Investing is you're making a decision again and again and again and again, multiple, multiple decisions through time. And it's in totality, are you making them more right than wrong over time. Okay. And so it's remaining grounded in that process and not letting the outcome sway the way you think about doing things. Yeah. And I find that quite interesting, particularly because as human beings, we're weak. I'm just as weak as every other human being. Um, we're weak in what, what sense? In, in the terms sense of that, weak in our decision making? In the or? sense that uh, we fall in love with our companies. Okay. Um, and so... We can do things like there's a company we really like and we God, we really want to buy it. I really want to own this thing, but it might be a bit expensive. But because we want to own it so much, we're all clever people and got Excel spreadsheets. We could easily conjure a way to make it look cheap yeah. and therefore justify buying it. So you need a discipline to give you patience and wait for that company to genuinely be attractively valued before you buy. And then the worst is once you already then own it and it starts going up a lot oh my God, you're a genius, you're a hero, I found this amazing stock, aren't I brilliant? You really love this stock now. Mm. Then it becomes really difficult to sell. And it doesn't matter how skewed the risk reward on that stock becomes against you, the more it goes up, the greater the risk is that it will go wrong in the future. It doesn't matter because the more it goes up, the more you love it. Right. You know, And I would argue Microsoft's a great example of that in the sense that I look across my peers and, and we are in the income sector. Mm. And quite a lot of them own Microsoft. Well, it doesn't yield anything. And so you're like, what's it doing in an income fund? It should be in the growth funds. Yes, obviously. But what's it doing in an income fund? Well, it's kind of, well these things have gone up. You know, the Apples, the Teslas, they've gone up so much. People can't, can suffer it no more. You know, I just can't keep waking up every morning and seeing these things go to the moon. I've just got to own some of them or something of them. Yeah. Uh, and so the problem with that is that you end up buying 
you get style drift in what you do. You end mm. up becoming more growthy than income. But equally, you buy something that doesn't yield anything just because you've got to own it and isn't it amazing. What it means then in order to get the income at your portfolio level, you've got to buy something with a higher yield in order to get the overall portfolio to compensate for nothing in Microsoft. Mm. And then you end up barbelling your portfolio. And uh, again, when you look back through history, um, you know, and one of the reasons why we put these disciplines in place back in 2005 is that when you start to move up the yield spectrum to get higher yields in stocks, you're moving into more and more risky companies. The percentage chance of those companies cutting their dividends go up. You're, you're more at risk of buying value trends. Yes, yeah, the market's not completely stupid. It can work out companies which are fragile and not able to suffer, and therefore when something goes wrong, the dividends like to be cut. Yeah. Um, and so, and yet, but if you're barbelling, you're forced to go and start investing in this part of the market. And I would also argue, and you're investing in the really expensive part of the market, which is the sort of sex and violence growth stuff. Mm. At which point you're like, well, statistically, they seem like very unattractive places to go and try and do investing. Right, it's better to hunt in the but middle. But you can't stop yourself, yeah, because you haven't got the discipline and you fall in love with these things. You end up and you just drift into these positions. Mm. And I would be the same. <clears throat> I mean, I, genuinely, I would be the same. And I know when we were forced to sell Microsoft, oh, my God, the the torture we put ourselves through to try and work out if there was another way we could hold on to it was another way of thinking about it. all this kind of stuff and we were falling exactly into that trap yeah and going we just got to trust the process yeah and, and because the process has been in place long enough now you know, you've got enough statistical evidence behind it to be able to demonstrate that it does lean the stats in your favor therefore just keep doing it and keep playing the same old game and then eventually it'll work yeah I suppose coming on coming on to the process a bit more, I mean, we've touched on it a lot there, but a bit more explicitly. I suppose something I'm keen to ask is the, the way you're discussing it as an income fund manager, I suppose, uh, you, you know, I, you, your, your purpose is, is to provide an income as part of an attractive total return. But do you, you know, do you see that as the main goal or the way you're discussing it, it's almost as if it's, uh, you know, it's a helpful discipline in and of itself to, to, to make sure you're investing where... Yep. There's good value in the market. So it's uh, it's very much about uh, the statistics of it working through time. Okay. Um, and what we found, I mean, there are lots of different ways of running money. Mm. And there are lots of different ways at work. Yeah. So it's, I'm not sort of claiming that this is the only way you can run money. But what we have found, and when we've looked at stuff, is that by, by putting income at the core of what we do, we tend to lean those statistics of being able to generate a decent total return over time. Mm. Why is that? It's because we are compounding a dividend that's greater than that of the market. So we're compounding a bigger number than the market. That's just statistically to our advantage. And then you look through time, and the power of compounding a stable number again and again ends up dominating everything. As Einstein said, it's the eighth wonder of the world. And you go back through time of all markets, you can see that the compounding of the income dominates all your total returns. So why not try and harness that? It seems yeah. like a very sensible thing to do. But the other thing that's probably more controversial is that there's quite a lot of evidence that also suggests that companies that are able to generate durable dividends through time, hmm. uh, by definition, must generate a durable cash flow in order to pay those dividends. Yeah, And therefore, by... By making sure every single company in your portfolio pays a dividend, not bar betting, uh, you are alighting on companies which have durable cash flows and by definition, therefore, must have some kind of discipline over how they allocate their capital to maintain those cash flows through time. Yeah. Either just good quality businesses. 
But because of the disciplines, you're buying them when they're out of favour. They've got a decent enough yield of traps and the risk rewards asymmetrically um, skewed in your favour. Mm. What's controversial about that <clears throat> is that particularly in today's market, uh, everyone told you that must be rubbish, yeah, because you've got to invest for growth, and it's all about growth. Yeah. And growth will get you your biggest returns, won't they? And so companies that are paying dividends are boring. There must be X growth because otherwise they'd be investing everything. <clears throat> the, the difficulty with that is that the evidence tells you that most companies' management are terrible at allocating capital. They're rubbish at it. What, what what do you mean by that? I, well, you can see it all the time. So M&A mm. always happens at the top of markets. Right. Not at bottom. No one was buying anything apart from Warren Buffett in March 2020 and March 08. But everyone's buying. Peak M&A always happens at the top of markets. They're share buybacks. Mm. Yeah, companies, again, investing in themselves, apparently. It always happens at the top of markets when when the valuations are the most expensive. Yeah. Share buybacks fell 75% in the March pandemic. Like that's exactly when you as an investor needed them to step up and buy their shares. That's when they were cheap. Mm. And that's when, when you when you're buying shares, you buy them cheap, you're dragging value back into the company. And if you're buying them when they're really expensive, you're effectively giving the value away invariably to the CFO and the CEO whose options you're buying, sort of thing. Um, and so there's loads of evidence to suggest that companies do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Yeah. And of course, then coming back to well, what is investing? Investing is trying to make you know this decision right more often than not over time. Well, if you then think about well, yeah, let's take Facebook. How are we going to pick the next Facebook or Meta, as it's now called, <laughs> when there were a hundred companies that tried to be Meta and all failed, including some pretty well-funded companies, MySpace, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. It wasn't like it was a bunch of small companies that couldn't compete. Even the big ones didn't manage to make it work. And one of them worked and a hundred of them failed. Well, if those are the stats, I've got to find the needle in the haystack and I've got to find every single time. I think that's quite difficult to do. And yeah, and the really best growth investors, even they would admit that's not how you can do it. They Mm. would admit you've got to buy all hundred of them and the ones that work go up so much that it compensates you for the 98 that all lost their money. And statistically, in this environment, that does work. But my question to that would be, what in... That's in an environment where we've had a lot of QE. So when things work, they do go up thousands of percent. But in a more normal market environment, go back to the way things used to be, when all the drugs being shoved into the market, does that work? Do the things that work go up enough to compensate you for everything that's lost? So I'm, you know, I'm just trying to do something that makes life easier for me. Yeah. Leans the statistics. And of course, then if you can get that right, if you can compound a durable dividend without sacrificing your capital return because you're in quality companies, so you can match capital, generate your outperformance through the compounding of the income. By definition, the compounding of the income is lower volatility than the capital return alone. So therefore, your total return will not only be a decent total return, but one with lower volatility. And those two massive concepts, I think, are something that clients really are striving for. Mm. And you, you say, you know, you've been running this process about 15 years and how important it is to stick to the process. Something I'm curious about is that, you know, there must be times where, where you're A, tempted to tweak something or B, you, you really come to think strongly we should tweak something. I think there's a slightly way we can improve yeah. this slightly. How, how, how do you deal with that? And can you give a kind of example? So it's been tweaked once. OK, okay. just once. Well, wow. um, over that 15 year period. And that was in 08. Mm. Um, and the reason for that I mean, life is interesting because when, you know, the process was put together in 2005 by James Harris. 
Um, who's now at Troy. Who's now at Troy. And interesting, doesn't follow the disciplines, which I find is an interesting dynamic. Okay. Um, when we put it together then, uh, basically, it was to target a 4% yield in the portfolio. Yeah. And back then, the disciplines were that you had to buy something which was yielding 50% above the market and sell it at 25% of the market. And those those hurdles effectively meant the fund was targeting a 4% yield. Mm. When we went through the March 08 financial crisis, the market fell so much that targeting those levels meant that we were now targeting a 5% yield on the portfolio, not 4 And going back to my early comment about when you start marching up the yield curve, you march into riskier companies, not durable, not able to. So it was like, we don't want to do that. You know, yeah. want to stay where we know dividends are durable and sustainable. And that's about the 4%. So at that point, the disciplines trading that one time, and it came down to 25% above for the buy and sell below the market. And it's stayed there ever since, basically. Okay. Um, and that's the only time. But what has been interesting about this strategy is that, as I say, when we started, it was kind of a bunch of work that had been done by stock gen and realizing 4% is what you want to target. Um, uh, but we've grown, as we've grown with it, and actually put it into practice, it's then that we've realized the other stuff that it does for us, the more biased helping stuff that it does for us. Yeah. Uh, where it leads us to constantly keep fishing for ideas, and you know, and it's and it's evolved in that sense of our understanding of what it does. So, <clears throat> this under this notion that you can only buy these good quality companies when something's going wrong. It's the only time you get the quality with the valuation and the yield all at the same time. But it only happens when something's going wrong. There's some kind of controversy, and what we found, having done it for so long, is that. Uh, the market kind of presents these five buckets of controversy to you again and again and again. Right. And it's through repeatedly fishing in those buckets again and again and again, you start to learn a better way of which questions you need to ask, what evidence you need to generate in order to calibrate whether that controversy is permanent and mm. therefore trap, walk away, or temporary in the opportunity and therefore that's our opportunity to invest. And, and definitely in this environment where technology disruption is huge and everywhere, those controversies are more permanent than they were, say, 20 years ago. Right. Um, but that's how it's evolved through time. And that, that understanding of what it gets us to do, that understanding that, uh, you know, we have to be comfortable with leaving the gross stocks on the table and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. But as a human, you just have to go, that's fine, because statistically we know it's still working over here. But you just can't you become at ease with that kind of way of, uh, of investing. Hmm. Um, or you don't. <laughs> and if you don't, you get out and you go and do something else. Yeah. Um, and that's all I say is that the team that uh, we have at Red Will, we get the religion is the way I talk about it. And you have to have that religion because of all the things it stops you doing and they're frustrating if you didn't have that religion. Um, and so you've got to believe in it. You've got to like you know, believe that this is the way that works through time. So let's just keep doing it and, yeah. and, and ignore everything else that everyone else wants to get into. Yeah. Well, I, I'm very interested to touch on those five buckets, but I, I suppose what you've just said, you know, leads me to ask. So in the, uh, well, couple of years now, since, since you since you made the jump to Red Wheel, you know, basically, how's it been going? And, you know, ha have you been happy with is the environment, what you expect? I mean, it's been great. I mean, I kind of, you know, again, re re resigning at the start of a global pandemic i mean we must have been the only fund managers to literally be sat in our garden because the government had told us that's where we're all going to sit yeah um uh, and so what that 
frustrating though it was for the rest of our families not to go traveling and have a lovely wonderful time it did mean that we were just pretended we were still working yeah and, and so when we relaunched the strategy uh and resumed it back in november of 2020 it was literally like that we just kind of as if we'd never stopped mm. and it was just carrying on as is and then what's been pleasing um over this period is that the strategy continues to do exactly what the clients would expect it to do i when the market tends to go to the moon like it did for about the first nine months of 2021 we lag we yeah. do not keep up with those sex and violence rallies but then when there's volatility returns to market which we've seen basically from november to now then the fund tends to do far better you yeah know, like the tortoise and the hare analogy <clears throat> we lag the hare when it's on a toy but when things get a bit more difficult the tortoise comes into its own and it's just really pleasing to see that the fund is still demonstrating those characteristics in exactly the same way as it has done basically since financial crisis okay um and what that means for the clients who you know we've been very thankful for because they've you know come over and supported us um and shown some trust and faith in us is that for them too you know they 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 own lots of funds and they're like a jigsaw of funds and each jigsaw piece has to play its part in the bigger picture mm. and what they don't want is that jigsaw piece to suddenly start doing something completely different because it's style drifting and things and so it's really pleasing for them to understand that we can just continue playing the same role in their jigsaw for them that we've always done yeah uh, and they want it deliberately because it fits within their jigsaw picture and so therefore that makes them happy and that's what i've been most pleased about Okay. And well, I think maybe a nice way into the portfolio would be you mentioned these five kind of repeatable buckets of controversy that you find. Yeah. What, what are those buckets and what might be a few of the stocks that fit into So them? the first two buckets are the really high return companies, the high ROIC companies, and it's called troubled, troubled compounding machines okay. and ex-growth cash generators are the first two buckets. And they're basically, the first bucket is the great companies and for some reason there's been a wobble in their short-term growth or some things come along. So a good example of that would be Pepsi. Okay. We bought it back in 17, 18, I think, from memory. Um, and there was fear of a sugar tax. And, of course, it makes fizzy drinks, doesn't it? And therefore, the share price fell 25% in a month. Mm. Um, but the reality was only 9% of their business is Pepsi Cola. Okay. It's basically a snacks business. It's not a fizzy drinks business. Um, and so, you know, that was your opportunity to be able to get into these great companies. And something going on, as long as you feel that the fat tax can't be applied to everything it does uh, and, and therefore disrupt its company completely, well, <clears throat> the confidence we got from that was it's by far and away the number one player in its market by a long way. So it basically dominates distribution. So even if the future was that the only thing we're going to eat and drink is seaweed and algae, Pepsi are probably going to be distributing that to us. Right. Uh, and so you know, we felt confident this wasn't disrupting this business you know, permanently. In the second bucket, it's more good companies which have gone X growth. They've stopped growing. And now the market fears that that's it. They're in terminal decline and they're out. Ironically, that was Microsoft in 2013 when it was on 11 times P and a double-digit free cash flow yield, etc. Um, and today, it's more like companies like Cisco Systems, okay, where everybody thinks it does hardware and that's commoditizing. It does and phone systems God, in offices, boring, and that's yeah, all. That's right. On the way out. Oh my God, that's all completely on the way out. 
But the reality is that over 50% of his business is now a software business. That security is one of its fastest growing parts of his business. And go figure, everyone is obsessed now about cybersecurity, etc. Yeah. Um, and so, but again, it's priced on a, well, when we were buying it, it was close to a double digit free cash flow yield. But even today on a 6% free cash flow yield, it's basically priced that you can make that company go bust within eight years. And you will harvest enough cash off that business to still get your money back. So you lose opportunity cost and a bit of time value money. Well, so the bet I'm making is Cisco still going to be here in eight years. Well, I can do a lot of work to see if its clients are loyal. Is it growing? Is it transferring? I'm going, well, actually, the risk reward kind of would point to, yes, it will be. Well, yeah. it's not valued like that. So happy days. That's Thank you very much. Then those first two buckets, they make up uh, two thirds of the portfolio consistently through time. Okay. Because they are obviously the ones which generate the most cash, invariably had the best balance sheets, the most durable, most able to suffer. And therefore, we want the most, the largest part of our portfolio. And what I find amazing through time is that uh, we are repeatedly given opportunities to buy stocks in these environments. Like the market keeps offering up these opportunities. The last three buckets, which make up a third of the portfolio, are profit transformation, which is obviously mean reversion of a cycle and you want to buy obviously at the bottom of the cycle and then but the difficulty for that is that quite a lot of companies at the bottom of the cycle don't pay dividends because they can't suffer it anymore so you, you don't get vast amounts of opportunity but it's worth doing if you can um and then you've got and what would that be a more sort of cyclical business like a more cyclical but so i mean ironically uh the, the oil companies fall into this okay uh, but ironically when we were buying and we were buying this before esg had taken a real big hold of the oil industry mm. um uh and we were buying it when the oil price had fallen down to about 40 dollars the strange thing was we didn't actually want the oil price to mean revert we didn't want it to go back up again because the the it's not the case today but it was the case that for those big oil majors like your shells etc was the higher the oil price the less cash they made which sounds ridiculous right because they'd spend as much money but they spend as, they as much money trying to find the stuff because it's like hundred dollars plus you've got to find it in the ground you pay done to tax to governments you spend miles millions of dollars on rigs and lorry drivers and everything costs because it's all linked to the oil price yeah so your variable cost goes through the roof and then they go and spend tons of money searching for stuff and ironically and then they're paying their dividends but they're paying them scripts because they can't afford it in cash ironically when the oil price is 40 dollars they throw off tons of cash because they're now not spending any money on the tax and they're not spending any money trying to find oil and there's only lots of cash today it's flipped because the esg dynamic that's taken a hold of the sector means they just will not spend their money looking for oil yeah so now they are geared to an oil price going up the more the oil price still the more cash flow that comes in uh, and they are becoming prodigious cash flow machine companies which is good because they need to make a lot of investment in renewables but actually in totality they've got plenty of money to do that and pay a decent dividend and still have a really robust balance sheet to the end so the dynamics change quite dramatically for those ones sure and then, then what are our last couple of buckets so the last bucket is capital intensity uh, which are those you know, lower return businesses. They're much more capital intensive in the way they have to generate their returns. But the market gets bored of these companies because they're just not exciting. And occasionally, if you can find the ones where those returns are quite stable, i.e. they're regulated, so your utility companies, their property REITs, all these things where they're fight quite stable flows of cash, but they're not that exciting, but the market gives up on them because they're so dull, that's your opportunity to buy okay. into those. And then the final one, which is the smallest bucket of all, is special situations. Mm. Um, 
And that can be hidden pension assets, spin-offs. And today, the one that keeps popping up uh, is litigation. So we had uh, a few years ago, Bayer. It bought Monsanto. Monsanto is getting sued for causing cancer with glyphosate. The market panics, as is always the case, as it did with tobacco, as it did with farm, as it does with banks. All Every single time, the market repeatedly overreacts to the fear of the extent of litigation. Yeah. Uh, as it did with buyer, and therefore that's your opportunity to buy it. If you think it can survive and you don't think the product itself is going to be completely disrupted by it. And today, we would argue Philips is in exactly that position. Product recalls on its sleep products. Again, the market is panicking and thinking the whole business is going to zero. And again, we think statistically of the probable outcomes that's unlikely to happen. So those are the kind of things that we try to invest in and, yeah. and, and the times we do it in. Okay. Well, having already talked about Shell a bit, um, you know, we're, we're speaking in earliest March and it'd be remiss of us not to mention the war in Ukraine. Of course, terrible, you know, made terrible humanitarian aspects. But I suppose as a fund manager, what, what, what do you make is, what do you make of the, the effects of that? And well, and what it's doing to oil and gas prices? Um, I mean, I think that I mean, one of the biggest crimes of most of our managers is we're talking certainty, yeah. as if we know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and, and to try and understand how this war is finally going to come to a conclusion is very difficult to play out. But I think what you can probably have more certainty about is that uh, the events that have happened have meant that commodity prices are going to stay higher for longer. Okay. You know, Europe has found itself in this ridiculous position of being beholden to an aggressive nation now mm. uh, for its energy and it's going to have to divest away from that and that's going to require much more investment in other renewable stuff etc um, and that will probably keep the oil price elevated for longer um, going back to what we were saying about Shell that actually ends up being a good thing these days for those oil companies it provides them with the cash flow that they need in order to make the investments that they require in the renewable side uh, and enough to keep paying us the dividend whilst we're waiting for that transition to happen. Um, and I think that can be said not just for oil, but for commodity prices across the piece, so particularly in food, et cetera, which is why, again, with Bayer, where it has a big agricultural part of the business, we think it ultimately would be beneficial for that company too. Yeah. Um, but in the short term, knowing which way this is going to play out and the politics involved is impossible to call, really. And so, again, you just hope your companies are able to suffer that kind of turmoil. Yeah. And what, what do you think a company, I mean, in a way, they're already doing it, but they're already canning their Russian operations. But what do you think companies should do about their Russian operations and Russian exposure? Well, I think that, you know, you've got moral and financial decisions to be made. And, and, and quite frankly, now's the time to put morals at the top yeah. and the financial considerations number two, or even three or four or five. Mm. Um, and, and so again, it's looking at our companies, and we've looked across all of our portfolio, and, and lots of our companies have got minor exposure to Russia. Our retail companies have got some stores in Russia, that kind of stuff. Right. But to understand that they have the ability to just literally hand them over and walk away, write it all off and just walk away, and that they can suffer that, they can cope with it, and they can just move on. Um, and, yeah, and I think that... You know, a lot of our companies are thinking like that, and I think that's probably one of the right ways to think about it. Until Russia and its regime dramatically change, because you get a change of leader and they have a completely different attitude. But whilst their persistent, their current attitude persists, then I think that is the right moral decision, and, and it should take precedence over finances. And if your company can suffer it, then great.
Yeah. Well, another area of interesting implications is defence stocks. Yes. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing Germany, for example, seemingly do an about turn about about its uh, you know long term well underspending on de- on defence compared to NATO targets and so on. You own Lockheed Martin. Yeah. Um, MBA systems. MBA, oh, you own MBA systems as well. Yeah. well. yeah. I mean, can you can you can you discuss that a bit and and what this does for their prospects? Yeah, so I mean, we've we've always taken the view from a from an ESG angle that, yeah. and you know, you can go one side of this argument or the other, and we go on the side that defence is necessary to retain world peace, and if you take away our defence capabilities, relying upon the rest of the world to behave themselves seems like a rather naive assumption, and I kind of guess that's now been proven to be the case, um, and so that therefore. Unlike other industries like tobacco, etc., uh, defence as an industry was not going to be uh, eradicated completely forever. And yet, when we were buying into our Lockheeds and our BEA systems, they were sort of valued if that was going to be the case. Budgets in defence spending were going to zero, etc., etc. Um, so now, obviously, the flip is that they're going to have to start spending far, far more money. I mean, it's not just Germany. Yeah. A lot of Europe has been spending far less than the 2% of GDP they're meant to be spending. And in order to play catch up, they're going to have to spend even more than 2% of GDP. So we're talking about huge amounts of money that's going to have to come in. And this is a pretty monopolistic industry these days in the West. You know, a very few number of companies are able to deliver and produce and Lockheed and BA is certainly one of those two companies. Mm. Um, so we think the future looks pretty bright. Then it comes down to valuation. Yeah, I mean, everyone's now fully aware of that. So it's not like any of that's rocket science and anyone doesn't know about it now. Uh, and the share prices have gone up a lot. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have to be very conscious of that risk reward. Is it more of it priced in than not? We don't think at the moment, but I'm sure it will get there. Uh, and then just to keep us honest from falling in love with them, we'll have the sell discipline that will force us out if they don't yield enough. So, yeah, it could be brilliant. <clears throat> and I hope it is and it will be brilliant. And then we'll be forced to sell them and rotate into something else. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we can kind of wrap up talking about a couple of other areas of the, the portfolio. Um, you know, people might be surprised as an income fund. Tech is, yes. is your biggest sector, at least the, the, way, the way it's categorized, uh, make up more than a, port, a quarter of the portfolio. And a lot of that is semiconductor companies. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, why is that? Is that something particular about? That the semiconductor space, or is that just where the best opportunities are? So it's it's mainly where the opportunities get provided to us. But we do really like semiconductors. They play into the thematic um, structural growth that we're seeing in technology yeah. across every industry. And yeah, you know, and <clears throat> we love a growth story just as much as anyone else. We just don't want to have to pay through the nose for it. Yeah. Um, and of course, the market's become obsessed with very small number of technology companies, and have marched them up to the highest concentration level in the market we've seen ever in history. You know, these top five companies dominating the market, 25% of the S&P, 14 to 15% of the world market just in five companies. But what that means is there's lots of tech companies that have just been forgotten about, seen as boring. Um, but actually, you can still get the same exposure to that growth. So Qualcomm's 5G, <clears throat> all about connectivity. Uh, Cisco's about the security, TSMC and Samsung are making the chips, all the memory that goes into these things. Um, so you can still get that exposure at far better valuations. Um, and then what's interesting, obviously, as we've come out of the pandemic, you can see there's been a massive underinvestment in the chip industry. Right, and huge shortages. Because, yeah. you know, so many like Intel, etc., 
be misallocating capital to the point we were talking about earlier that companies constantly doing it and then pulling out of the market and then suddenly realizing there's only one person left making chips oh and they happen to be in taiwan oh my goodness uh, and so there's this mad now frantic panic in order to increase the capacity now obviously at some point that's going to lead to too much capacity in the semi but it takes a long time to build these billion dollar fabs um uh, and so it's probably four or five years down the line but in four and five years time we're probably going to want to be out of these things but for now they're in a really strong position they have pricing power which obviously in an inflationary backdrop is something you look for in your companies um and and it allows us as you say to be overweight technology despite the fact we can't own the big sex and violence five stocks in the world yeah and what um, and what about banks i mean or financials in general you know a more area coming back into favor a bit as interest rates start to rise and Particularly, I think, for, for investors in UK equity income funds, you know, ba- banks will often, there'll be big dividend pairs in the FTSE and people will probably associate them with this sector. But you, you don't really seem to own many. You, you know, you're no, underweight financials. We have one bank. Um, uh, they are big dividend pairs. They're also big dividend cutters. Right. As we've seen since the financial crisis and the pandemic. Uh, and now we're seeing some of the European banks with their Russian exposure, obviously. Uh, and the dividend is one of the first things to go, which is not what we want. We're trying to compound a dividend again and again through time. We need mm. our companies to pay those dividends. But more importantly is that the reason why you'd buy banks and some other stuff <clears throat> like industrials, etc., is that you know the, the sort of common narrative at the moment is we're at the beginning of the economic cycle. And we must be because interest rates haven't gone up yet. And interest rates always go up at the beginning of the economic cycle, don't they? And, and then that's great because then that means the yield curve is going to steepen. That means banks' margins go up. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as the economy accelerates, they're going to sell more of what they do, which is loans. Um, and, and no one's going bust. So their non-performing loans are wonderfully behaving. And so isn't that fantastic? You've got to have these banks. Um, and yet, when we look at the evidence, it says the complete opposite. The yield really? curve is not steepening. The yield curve is flattening. Yeah, right. Which isn't good for margins. And in fact, the yield curve is telling you that actually we're probably later in this cycle than earlier in this cycle. I, when we start to put up interest rates, the economy will suffer quite quickly rather than it's the start of a nice, wonderful up cycle. And then you look at um, debt around the world in consumers. Uh, in corporates particularly put on another 10 trillion dollars of debt in the last two years globally or governments everyone's stuffed full of debt the stuff that they sell the banks so i don't think there's this pent-up demand for everyone to want more debt Uh, so the margins probably aren't going up and they're not going to see an acceleration in their top line and actually history will tell you that the right time to buy a bank is not when nobody's going bust it's when everyone's going bust so from a cycle point of view i think we're at the completely the wrong part of the cycle and then you go well okay well that would all be fine if they were trading on 0.4 times book i all of that's in the price and they're already discounting nothing's going to work but they're not they're all quite well valued book or above book i they're expectant of all those things to go right and yet the evidence tends to suggest that that is not going to happen and therefore again probabilistically with regards to what are the likely outcomes well it's skewed against you not in your favor and then of course if anything actually goes wrong like a war or something and then we get a global recession we get global stagflation yeah well then these banks they are in a better position they were during the financial crisis but they're still very levered businesses 20 Mm. times levered etc so they will not be able to suffer in that downdraft and so therefore we don't really want to be putting our money in those kind of companies when we think the market's still offering us decent quality businesses at a reasonable yield i think that's a much safer way to try and play a likely volatile future that we're going to face for the next 10 years 
Okay. And perhaps uh, just a last, a last question to finish, uh, you know, inevitably here I'm sort of uh, crudely generalizing, but, you know, b- before um, Russia invaded Ukraine, perhaps, um, well, and, and, and still, we'd seen this real rotation to value start to gather mm. momentum since the start of the year. Basically, do you, do you think that's going to continue and play into play into your hands? Uh, what it might do um it doesn't play into our hands because we're not devaluing it we're on the way of banks we're on the way mi- yeah industrials are on the way of mining <clears throat> uh and deliberately so because we don't think we're at the you know the beginnings of a new economic super cycle we think quite late in this cycle we don't want to play those companies um but the market's become like that and the market has literally just run from one side of the boat to the other his growth is value his growth is value and it's like yeah. that's the only two ways you can invest and kind of forgetting there's this nice quite slightly less volatile middle ground that the tortoise plogs along mm. doing quality at a reasonable yield and um you know and i think that is ultimately going to serve us in good stead i think the last uh 10 or so years we've had since the financial crisis where we've been um become addicted to the drugs of central banks and the stimulus of central banks supporting up markets forever i think that is genuinely changing either what was the bananke put and the yellen put and now the power put is waning uh and therefore we're returning to back to more normal market environments which are just more volatile environments and i know that this kind of strategy and this kind of way of generating a total return quite suits a more volatile backdrop so therefore i think this is pretty well placed for the next 10 years okay well thanks very much nick really thanks so much for coming in today and you know great to learn more about your approach and and get your thoughts thanks for having me fantastic and the last thing to say uh, for those listening home is thank you very much for listening today and please look out for more funds fanatic show podcasts (laughs) 